Welcome to the Science Communication Journal Club podcast. Today we talk about the role of preprints in scientific publishing and their impact on science communication. SciComm Journal Club podcast is your one-stop shop for effective and impactful science communications approaches. At SciComm JC, we aim to help scientists integrate findings from the latest evidence-based research in social sciences and education into their outreach efforts. We curate, summarize and discuss research studies and their applications to real communications contexts in a way that scientists can easily implement. Hello listeners, today I'm joined by a lot of cool people. So we have from the team Sherry, Heather and Maria. Maria is the one who toasted, uh, toasted, <laughs> who hosted the Twitter chat uh, that we covered today. And we have a special guest who was one of the active participants during that Twitter chat. And also he was the author of the paper that we discussed and that's Johnny Coe. Hello. Hey. Hello. Hi. Nice to have you all. And um, I'm going to jump right into the meat of today's topic. Maria, tell us what was the paper that Johnny wrote about? Yes, uh, so I'm going to try to summarize it very briefly. And the great thing is if I miss any key points, Johnny, please <laughs> jump in and add them. This is the best part of having you here. All right, so for this Twitter chat, we discussed an open access meta research article published in April of this year, 2021. And I believe the paper was actually suggested to us by one of, someone, uh, one of our followers on Twitter. So that's great. Now there's a lot of data there and a lot of charts. So I invite the listeners to read the original for the full picture. But let me summarize it briefly today for our podcast. So our context is, of course, a life-threatening viral pandemic. And uh, the fact that the way science operates in response to current events has changed. So traditionally, research has been communicated via publishing. Um, authors submit a manuscript. Journal organizes peer review, where other scientists are then invited to scrutinize the work and determine if it's suitable to be published. And often there's a need for multiple revisions as authors need to address uh, reviewer concerns even run additional experiments. And at the end of the day, about half of submissions are rejected. So authors would need to resubmit to another journal. So obviously a lengthy process. Uh, for life sciences, it takes about half a year from submission to acceptance. And I mean, I, I know this pain very well. I think one of my articles took about a year to get published. It's, it's definitely frustrating. And so there's been an increase in use of preprints across many fields, which are uh, publicly accessible scholarly manuscript that have not yet been certified by peer review. And overall, two thirds of preprints are eventually published. And the COVID pandemic is actually the first time that preprints have been widely used outside of specific communities to communicate during uh, such an event. So in responding quickly to this pandemic, the scientific community released over 125,000 COVID-related scientific articles in the first 10 months, and more than 30,000 of those were hosted by preprint servers, so about 25%. And authors analyzed the attributes of preprints, their access and usage rates, and characteristics of their spread online. And data overall show an increased scientific and public engagement with the COVID preprints. Uh, for example, they were accessed more, cited more, shared more uh, than non-COVID preprints in the same time frame. And it was really cool that authors also analyzed Twitter discussion topics by hashtag use and found that while many of the top used hashtags were just neutral references to the outbreak, there was also a large proportion of tweets that was associated with conspirational ideologies, right-wing populism in the US, 
um, and topics associated with controversial preprints like hydroxychloroquine. Lastly, let me just mention that there's been important changes in the use of preprints, specifically much more increased media attention. Uh, so news outlets have reported, you know, a lot on COVID preprints, which is, of course, not surprising. And they're used in policy documents. So COVID preprints were present, though at very low levels, still in COVID policy documents, suggesting that preprints may be used to directly influence policymakers. And lastly, the authors do share that there are some concerns that are for the use of preprints. When we consider this heavy news coverage, they're using policy documents and overall increase in sharing, which includes premature media coverage. And the fact that putting warning signs on preprint manuscripts that might clearly indicate that this is not established information, it should not be regarded as conclusive, the media coverage kind of still goes through the roof also, <laughs> unsurprising, I guess. So that's my summary. And um, Johnny, I, I would love it if you could um, introduce yourself, tell us how you heard about our chat, why you got interested, what you thought of the chat, and what you'd love to share with us about your um, stance on preprints. Yeah, that was a great introduction to the paper. You. you covered it. You covered it better than I would have done. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I I was the senior author on that paper, and I, I'm not sure if you're aware, but it actually started its life as a preprint. Oh. And we we did a few versions of the of the preprint before we submitted it to a journal. So you can go right back and look at how this work in particular has evolved over so the few months it took us to get to a point of submission. Mm -hmm. um, and what you will see is that we did a separate bit of work, which is currently under review, um, which was part of the original preprint, which is no longer in the, the paper. Mm. Um, and yeah, it really started from a, a point of seeing that preprints were experiencing this massive surge in usage. Because I'm someone who follows preprints anyway. I'm quite a, I like preprints. I'm, I advocate for them quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and very early on in the pandemic, what you saw was a influx of people posting to preprint servers, particularly BioArchive and MedArchive. And those are the two kind of big ones within the life sciences, although things like uh, Research Square are also seeing a lot of usage. And so that, that was our jumping in point. We dived straight in. Uh, we knew preprints were being used more, but everything else in that paper, we were kind of fairly objective about. We didn't really know what we would expect to see. And I also noticed that um, actually in this uh, publication, there's a link to all the reviewer comments, right? The yeah. Review history. This is very cool. Is this standard right now? No. Uh, and there's actually two lots of peer reviewer comments. So uh, because we were, we advocate preprints, all the authors do, and it was a preprint about preprints we kind of felt a bit compelled to take part in all the initiatives that were rising up as part of the pandemic response. Mm. One of those was uh, we've seen an, an increase in the number of services that now do peer review on preprints. So if you go, again, mm -hmm. if you go back to our preprint, you'll see on there it, there's uh, two or three reviews attached to it there. Uh, and then when we submitted to PLOS Biology, again, the, we posted the reviews publicly with the paper. That's something mm -hmm. that PLOS Biology and eLife do, um, but generally in the biosciences, it's still not quite the norm yet, unfortunately. Mm. And let me just share that. So we did a Twitter poll a couple of days before the Twitter chat. We had 26 respondents. And the question was, which statement about preprints comes closer to your own view, even if neither is exactly right? So one statement is, Overall, preprints are beneficial for communicating science to non-expert audiences or two, overall preprints are detrimental for communicating science to non-expert audiences. Exactly this word, I just want to point it out so it's not like in general. And uh, our results were that 58% beneficial 
and uh, 42% said detrimental. I definitely voted on the poll. I wrote the question, you know, as a public opinion um, questionnaire designer, I was actually really excited about how tough it was to take one side, right? That's why I gave it the note, like, even if neither is exactly right. Um, so I'm one of the 42%. I said that overall preprints are detrimental for communicating science to, again, specifically non-experts. I'm looking at it in this particular, particular context, not science in general and that public health. So why? So I don't think uh, personally for now still that sharing and reporting on work that has not been peer reviewed has uh, benefits for the non-expert public. Uh, instead, I kind of see issues with the premature and stoppable media coverage, uh, misuse of information, as in, I mean, sharing it as evidence despite eventual changes or failure to be published. Um, because it might fit someone's desired outcome or bias. It's something I spend a lot of time with in my uh, dissertation work, looking at health perceptions and how people cling, of course, to information that makes sense to them, even when it's retracted. You know, those things still keep being shared once they're out there. And um, just I feel like it may contribute to a general increase in confusion and some loss of trust when it comes to standards of scientific credibility, again, by the general public from what I've seen in my science communication efforts. So, um, or at least different pockets of it, people for, let's say, um, lower trust levels in government or agencies overall. And let me just share, I do have one uh, thing that biases me. I've had a frustrating experience with preprints in the last year. At some point, there was this really great uh, topic we were discussing for one of our chats, and I found a wonderful paper that was just fascinating. Uh, it was about communication, but it had some relevance to COVID as well. And I actually, so I reached out to authors to let them know, like, hey, we're going to be discussing this. Would you be able to share, you know, join our chat? And by the time they replied to me, I did like all the work, you know, I created all the slides, I summarized <laughs> it, and I was really um, thrown off when they told me, you cannot discuss our paper. I was like, oh, um, uh, and, you know, I tried to bargain. I couldn't help it. I was like, oh, well, I, I prepared and it's fascinating. And obviously, I, you know, I'm a science communicator. I have your best interest in mind. I'm going to make sure I have, uh, I explain because I have control of the chat that it's a preprint. It means that some things might change. You know, I, I offered all these things. And they're like, no, do not discuss our paper. We've uh, had some pushback by posting it and sharing it on Twitter. It's going to, uh, you know, have like major revisions, we think like don't talk about it and so I was a bit frustrated I was like if I can't talk if I can talk about it and I reached out and found out and had a chance to ask you um I mean it's still out there I would take it down then and that's kind of where I was left with my feelings about preprints honestly it's like don't why are they there if you don't if you're not allowing me to discuss them <laughs> publicly so that's kind of my background what about you guys yeah, that kind of defeats the purpose of putting preprints out there, isn't it? I mean, why do you even put it in a public display when you don't people mm. to discuss it? Isn't that like that's part of the essence, apparently, of the public preprint production? But, mm, I think maybe Johnny here can also contribute to that. But I think the, the main point of having a preprint published in a server like this is to get input on the science that you are planning to publish from your peers mm -hmm. and not from non-experts. So I can see why there is a little bit of a disconnect between the people who want to talk about the research and the people who might be able to help improve on that research before publication. Yeah, I mean, there's, 
when you, there's a plenty of uh, surveys out there asking authors why they post preprints and generally feedback is one of those ones that comes out on top. One of the big, I think the best reason for posting a preprint is actually nothing to do with any of that. It's because as an early career researcher within science, it is so beneficial for your career. Yeah, and th yeah. that is where the big boost of, of preprints really comes in. It's interesting that the example you gave where the authors didn't want to discuss their work because they'd had feedback and it was stuff that has led them to change their paper so much that they don't want someone discussing it with the public. I would say that's a positive of preprints because if this paper had gone through peer review, there's no guarantee peer review would have caught any of these things. You would hope it would. But then once that paper's published, there's not a lot you can do about your paper then. Mm -hmm. It is very, very difficult to get your paper retracted. But with a preprint, those authors can then do those changes, re-upload a new version. And then if they were nice authors, they might get back in touch with you and say, we've now got something that is more solid and is supported by the data. So I would have said that was a positive, if anything. That's really interesting. Thank you for, for bringing that to light, Johnny, because I, I think, yeah, flexibility seems to be one of the big benefits then. Um, and that's something that I don't know that our chat necessarily directly touched on. So I'm glad it came up in this conversation. Yeah, I yeah. think we all agree that preprint is good for science. And it's interesting to hear the main motivation behind preprints, and that is to get published, which is something that I'm, I'm hearing for the first time, because if personally I had any positive uh, views about preprints is because you get to get more feedback on more people rather than just a few reviewers. So that, that is the positive side of it for me. Um, career advancement is really important. I've been there, but I don't think that should be the sole reason. It's important that it's there that, and that it helps scientists or early career scientists to show their work. But we have to also think about the broader implications. Um, so that, that's interesting. Now, I also said it's detrimental solely because of, from a point of view of a science communication and also from a point of view of an educator. From a point of view of science communication is when you're, I've, I'm always having discussions uh, with people I, with whom I disagree, and obviously they're mostly anti-science, and they would bring, present their preprints, which haven't been peer-reviewed, and they present their argument using that to to support their argument. If using pre non-peer-reviewed preprints, such as the one that Maria wanted to use, is the standard, then whose preprints is going to be better? Who is more reliable? And that is something that probably is difficult to communicate with the public and to get them to understand. And then with respect to education, what do we teach students who are coming up with this in this field? Uh, what is the standard of credible scientific sources? Um, so what do we teach them? Do we, when we teach them, do we put that preprint now? Do we modify our slides and say, this is the process that is going on right now? What, another concern that I have is that the preprints, especially the kind that Maria referred to, provides an opportunity for those who don't mean well to take advantage of it and twist up and then they blow that out of proportion, say, see, scientists are lying to you. And we really cannot expect uh, members of the public to go shift through all those series of comments, public comments, and go on Twitter and read through those arguments. So it, it just makes our job a little more difficult. And I think as science communicators, we have to have a game plan for it. I mean, that that, that is really interesting. But 
So in terms of teaching, whether that be students or, or the general public, do we not want to treat, do we not want to teach people to think critically rather than relying on yeah. peer review instead? Because if we rely on peer review, well, so if we look at the evidence, I'm a scientist, I'm not, my side communication stuff is only sort of, it's very new to me. So I think of everything as as evidence. And if you take a look at the evidence that does exist, and there's not a great deal of it, but if you look at the problems with peer review, you see that there are numerous examples of nepotism where a senior scientist, and I, I'll not mention any names, so I don't want to get any trouble here, <laughs> where senior scientists have maybe leaned on editors or those editors have been underneath that senior scientist in the chain of command in their lab, and that has forced through very, very questionable, should have been retracted work. Mm. Um, but because it's been peer-reviewed, it comes with this stamp of validation. It's passed some process that the general public and students are taught to treat with this kind of almost reverence where it's been peer-reviewed, it must be good work, it must be correct work. Yeah. And what I think we should do is turn that around a little bit and instead say, this work has these strengths and it has these disadvantages. You know, what have other people said about it? If you're communicating science, that's one of the things where I think that that's where the gap is, is bridged because you can, if you're writing an article, for example, that's going to go into the general public, you can say, I've spoken to these experts and this is what they think. Or we've looked at the whole literature and, I mean, this is what meta-science is. We looked at the whole literature and the body of the evidence falls towards one direction or the other. And that's how you get your consensus. Rather than saying this paper's all right because it's past this this unknown process where we don't understand what's going on behind the scenes. Yes, and I agree that we should promote critical thinking. But the issue is a lot of times these conversations that we have with uh, deniers or those who want to spread disinformation or are just misguided happen in very short amounts of time. And people are just so distracted. There are just so many pieces of information that is coming at them that it's just unrealistic for them to say, go read all the reviews and find out for yourself. We have to better plan for a world where uh, disagreements between scientists, they're more public because publicly printed preprints are here to stay. And we just need to be prepared for it. And we need to brainstorm as science communicators, how do you address something like this, where you, in order for you to make the point that makes it much harder. And that's why I say it's, it's detrimental and we have to come up with a solution. I think we need to make the difference as well between what the preprints themselves are and who and how and for what are they used. I didn't vote on Maria's poll because if forced to choose between two choices that I don't <laughs> agree fully, I would just refuse to choose. But oh, the Venice, <laughs> a terrible public. Uh, <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, <laughs> but my 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 thinking is that. I, I lean towards a little bit on them being beneficial, maybe not yet, but they have the potential to be beneficial for communicating to non-expert audiences and both for teaching and for just quote unquote general audience, because it provides what Johnny did publishing his preprint after peer review with the comments of the uh, reviewers. This is black on white how peer review works and there's a track record of it. So there's publicly the original article, there's publicly the comments and there's publicly available the final um, out 
come after those comments have been addressed. So in an ideal world, and I know that we are far from it, this could very well be used to illustrate not just as ideas, but in very much practice how uh, science is being conducted by a rigorous uh, review. And I want to know what Heather uh, voted on the poll. Well, Navenna, like you, I actually didn't vote in this one. <laughs> and I, as the ever ambivalent person, and I'm sorry to all the people who do public opinion, Maria, <laughs> uh, I made this a little difficult. I really struggled with this question because um, I, you know, the forced choice nature of the, the question responses were also challenging for me um, because really it depends. It depends on the topic. It depends on the situation. Obviously, um, you know, in the context of this article, it was about, you know, information being distributed during a global pandemic. Um, but it also it depends on the intended use for the preprint. Is it really just sharing information on social media among the public? Like, hey, this was interesting or, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. Have you seen this? Or is it like in a policy report, maybe a summary of what we know so far or emerging trends, right? Like it's just more informational than that. And so, and then also the specific nature of the non-expert audience. So, I mean, are you talking to the media? Are you talking to policymakers or policy, um, you know, experts? Or are you talking to Jane Public? And so that's where I really found this to be a challenge because without sort of that contextual information, it's really hard to say that these are good or bad. Um, again, I think there's a lot of sort of aspects of this that need to be flushed out. So I don't know that we can today, you know, make a decision. <laughs> and then I just wanted to go back to the point that you made, Johnny, about like the necessity of really teaching um, the public to think critically when they run across information, like information in preprints or information in peer-reviewed journals. Um, I, I think that you're right. I mean, that's critical. And, and that's what we really seek to do as science communicators is teach people to think critically about the information that they come across. And I think in the thinking about the pandemic, the challenge with that is understanding scientific uncertainty versus how somebody who's not trained as a scientist sort of thinks of things as being uncertain and what that means to somebody who's a non-scientist. And I think maybe that's where the challenge lies with regards to how do we actually facilitate and encourage critical thinking and build those critical thinking skills because there's a big misunderstanding there among the public about what scientific uncertainty is versus how, again, regular Joe Q public sees, you know, oh my gosh, I really don't know, right? Like, so I think maybe that's just sort of fine tuning that conversation a little bit. I have a question, a specific question, and I'd love Johnny for you to weigh in on that. So. I wonder, um, I see the benefits to science. I see the benefits to um, scientists. I'm not sure personally, I see the benefits to the general non-expert public or for the media to have access to some of these things. So uh, what about, what if we kept preprints kind of specific to the expert community and not open to the media and the public? I wonder, do you think that would be better, worse, doesn't matter? Um, is that a potential way to go? I mean, to me, that just sounds like the process we were doing before preprints, just without the peer review part. Um, you know, you'd still have this work. And actually, sometimes we do that in science. Sometimes we will write a paper and before we submit it anyway, we will email it to a couple of people we know mm -hmm. and, and they'll, they'll give it a little read. And we might present our work at a conference. Conferences, obviously, are not, they're not closed, but to be honest, they're so expensive to attend. They are kind of closed. Uh, and, you know, that's for a scientific audience where we might present work that we haven't submitted anywhere yet. It might be work in progress and we get feedback on that. And that's great. But ultimately, what the really good thing about preprints being open is that everybody can see what is in there. 
you can assess it yourself, which I think getting back to that, communicating with anyone about science and uncertainty, being able to look at things yourself, I think is one of the easiest way to convince people. So, so there's a really, really good paper published not that long ago. And it was looking at how um, viral disinformation spread during the pandemic and who was spreading that information. And one of the main repeated topics that kept coming up in this, this paper and what they found was that people had this general distrust. Now, that's a distrust of, of government. It's a distrust of scientists because as scientists, apparently we're all trying to make money somehow. If, if any scientist out yeah. there knows how to make money doing science, please tell me. Um, and, and so what they found in this paper was that these groups were getting access to the data themselves. And then they were doing quite sophisticated analysis on the data so that it, it fit what they, they thought. And that's where somebody mentioned context a little while ago. You know, you, context is everything in science. You can have any bit of data you want. And without the context, that data generally can mean absolutely anything you want it to mean. And so because preprints are open, they're accessible by anybody and anybody can comment on it. You can comment on the preprint on the page it's on as a comment. You can talk about it on Twitter. You can talk about it on Facebook. You can go and run down the street and shout about it. And that means there's a lot more scrutiny. And if as a scientist, I post a preprint, I'm opening myself up to that level of scrutiny. And that means I want that work to be good and high quality and to withstand that scrutiny. And if somebody makes a valid point, then I can change it and I can make the work better. And so that's where I think even the non-experts, that's where that kind of comes into it. Because you say, I think you have to define non-expert because there's a lot of people who might not have a science degree, but maybe they've got a, a you know, they can analyze data really well. That's their day job. And they might be able to come in and say, well, you've, you've got this analysis and I think it can be done slightly better. And they might come on, they might come on board as an author. It's just, I think that openness is where science needs to eventually reach. This is interesting because when you're talking about looking at things yourself, I'm like, ooh, red, red flags for me, right? I'm not thinking about somebody who has any analytical skills. I'm thinking about your average person who's going to read it, mm. kind of look at the um, abstract, pick some things that make sense to them. And this topic really reminds me, I mentioned we had a previous chat, it was a couple of years ago, about the crucial importance of understanding the need to rely on experts at some degree. It was actually about um, simplifying science communication and how that can backfire because when your you know not expert audience starts thinking like oh i'm kind of getting this they think they don't really need to listen to experts and there's whole uh, range of issues with that but here's what i'm thinking here when it's open like this to the public and to comments and this person is trying to make sense of the article of course they don't have the tools really they're just trying to make a decision and they see a bunch of people let's say tweeting about it and a bunch of them are you know really great experts and then there's like Dr. Mercola or the health ranger, if we're talking about health, this alternative health uh, people who are very relentless in attacking science, taking it apart, having really great communication skills with the public in terms of working off people's biases. Many times they twist things to sell and promote really strange and I think dangerous remedies and things like that and views. And so as a public member, I'm sitting here and I'm like, I, I don't know. I mean, this person has a doctor next to them too. I just don't know who to listen to. I'm completely overwhelmed cognitively. I mean, I, I completely agree, but we then have to think about what the argument is. Is the argument preprint versus paper and how they're shared differently? Or is it just that science is being shared badly and people are misusing science, which I think is what is actually going on because abstract, you mentioned abstracts. Abstracts are the one bit of a paper everyone can read. 
Um, unless it's a clinical, as I found out, unless it's a clinical journal where they tend not to have abstracts for some bizarre reason. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you read a science paper and let's say it's published in a very high impact journal, might be really, really good quality science, but you're a member of the public and you don't have the 70 plus dollars to spend on that one paper to read it for 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So you read the abstract and that's it. You don't then get access to all that data underneath it. That, that, I mean, and I, what I should say, People in their abstracts, you know, that's, it's a very easy place to conflate your results, to oversell things. Um, and I had a, a discussion a little while ago with an editor for, I'll, I'll not name the journal, but what she told me is that actually in response to our other paper, where we compared abstracts, they've changed their guidance they give to scientists now when they're reviewing their papers, because generally they found that scientists did not then go back to edit their abstract after their paper had gone through the review process mm. they, they often just submit the same abstract uh, which to be honest i'm also guilty of um and because we were comparing abstracts and we found they didn't really change much that that was something she thought was was a concern so is it better to have a paper that's completely open or someone just having having an abstract well i think a lot of this that we're grappling with, which is early career scientists having um, um, having an opportunity to show their work and then the, the length of the peer re review process and this abstract that you're talking about, this is all symptom of things that need fixed. And because it seems to me because we don't have power over them, uh, we just come up with this solution of just publishing all the preprints. There are various different ways we could have dealt with that. Um, so probably one of the things to do is to advocate for changing, improving the peer review process to remove the, that influence of big publishers, I mean, sorry, big PIs to pressure um, journals for accepting their, their papers, uh, the length that it takes to review a paper. Uh, so early career scientists don't have to wait so long to show their goods, to show how good they are. I have a practical question, both to Maria and to Johnny. Um, you mentioned, Maria, in the beginning that, uh, and I think that's also data that came out from Johnny's paper that we discussed in the Twitter chat, that two-thirds of the preprints ended up being published in the end. So I I'm just wondering if you have, if you've gone to the trouble to actually compare that deep into your data, Johnny, how different are the ones that ended up being published in the end compared to the original preprints that were shared? Yeah, so this is what our second paper was about. Um, and what we did there was we looked at the all the papers that were published within the first four months of the pandemic mm -hmm. that were previously posted on BioArchive and MedArchive. And we ended up with, that, that was about 100 preprints that were our papers. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we went also to get a controlled data set, which was the non-pandemic uh, preprints published in the same time and published within the same time frame. And it was kind of surprising, actually. We, we looked at uh, how, so one of the first things we did was we counted the number of panels and tables within a, a, a preprint and a paper. Mm -hmm. And that was just to try and get a sort of quick way of gauging how much work had been done. So the idea being that if the paper had more panels than the preprint, then the authors had done more work and they'd improve the paper in some way, which is usually what you would have, you would find, you would normally find that with peer review. So we did that for COVID preprints and papers or non-COVID preprints and papers, over 60% of both had no real change in their total number of panels and tables. 
um, about 20% of COVID preprints and slightly less than that of the non-COVID pairs did undergo a significant content in terms of having extra stuff added. Um, but interestingly, when we looked at the abstracts, so we compared uh, sort of the main conclusions in the abstract, and we found that 94% of the non-COVID preprint papers we looked at and 85% of the COVID pairs had absolutely no changes to their main conclusions in the abstract. <laughs> So what that suggests is that the preprints might be getting, maybe the data is stronger when it's published, which is what you would hope peer review is doing. Mm -hmm. But importantly, their key conclusions don't change. Now, that's great if people are just having that abstract to access because then it kind of negates the whole conversation. But what is really, really, I think the important question that comes out of that is more how much did those paper, those preprints change when they were published? Mm -hmm. And is it worth the obscene amount of money and time and careers we lose? You know, all that stuff we spend, is that worth it for slightly stronger data? So other, other groups have, they've not compared that directly, but they've compared things like reporting criteria. So um, do you include data availability statements, that kind of thing? Uh, and again, they generally don't really change significantly following publication. Yeah, and I guess another thing you'd want to look at is, uh, I mean, how comparable are preprints that don't end up being published, right? Yes, that's the one I know thing. most get published, which is nice, but it's still like a pretty good minority that doesn't. So, I mean, it depends where you read. Um, the first author on the paper we're talking about, actually, he did the work that seems to be most often cited on this. And he found about 70% of the biomedical literature, or at least what's on bioarchive, sorry, is eventually published. Um, but yeah, absolutely. That's the one thing we, we weren't able to do. And I really, really want to do because I think that's, that's the kind of key missing bit is what happens to those ones that don't change. How do they compare to the ones that do change or the ones that are published? Sherry, I'm wondering, uh, you mentioned during the chat that we could get some really interesting psychom scenarios. Did you get inspired? I've um, been thinking as I go through my day how I put <laughs> that conversation because what we do with our psychom scenarios, we present the problem first, then we publish it in form of cartoons. We ask feedback from our psychom community and then we say, how would we respond to it? So I remember I was having a conversation on Facebook about uh, COVID and all the denial that people were going through. This woman shared a preprint and my immediate reaction then was that, well, this hasn't been pre-reviewed yet. So I don't know how to judge your, how you're supporting your argument. So I'm thinking of a scenario where a scientist is having a conversation with someone and they give these results or they uh, express their opinion and they back it up with preprints from a lab they trust. Then in that case, you can't really say my preprint is better than yours. Yeah, that's why I'm saying that we need to be prepared for it because these conversations will tend to happen. And as we've all learned, this all comes down to bias. And let's face it, some people who support this uh, publicly widely available preprints have their own biases and the ones who uh, don't agree we have our own biases and then trust who do you trust so is that, is that that's kind of somewhere where it would be really useful to have a tool that collated all this information together it, for example on bioarchive when you have your whatever preprint you want to take out you can pick anyone you want and right they've moved it to the top now so right at the top next just underneath the title and the authors is this little kind of bar that links out to things like Twitter, if there's any peer review done, it'll link out to the peer reviews. Yeah, and so that's that's having all that, having all that in one place and maybe having, so one of the things we did in this paper that you mentioned, we looked at uh, Twitter hashtags, right? With individual papers, uh, preprints. And we found some examples where the preprint was being used for almost exclusively science topics. 
and others uh, which were widely reported in the media for being utter rubbish. But they were used by, well, they were hijacked by people like Donald Trump, uh, by right-wing conspiracy media. And you can see that very, very quickly just looking at the hashtag. So maybe a tool that does that where it collates all the hashtags for a particular preprint would be useful because then you don't need to be an expert. You can look at something like a word cloud. And I think if you ever see a word cloud that is filled with racist terms, that should probably be the best indicator you need to disregard what is in there. Thank you for bringing this up, Johnny, because it actually ties to another question that I had somewhat related to this. In the data that you reviewed in your experience, were the articles that were more often shared in questionable type of context um, also the ones that had more, quote unquote, interesting titles? Um. I wouldn't say they were more interesting titles. It was more... Or catchy, rather. It, it, well, it was more the topic. So the ones that you found... So if we take the first four months, because that was a very mm. turbulent period. Out of the top 10 preprints that were most shared, a lot of those were those that were against wearing masks. They were the ones who said, it's you know, COVID's not that bad. The seroprevalence study in uh, California, for example, was top of the 10 for a very long time. And it's, it's more just... I mean, that those titles were not particularly catchy titles, but they were things that were, I think it's it, maybe it was the hope that people wanted. People maybe didn't want the pandemic to last as long as it has lasted. And unfortunately, they went down that route of finding things that supported that. And I think part of the problem with any science is that once enough people kind of pick up on it, it you, it's like a rolling ball that just keeps rolling and then it'll keep getting picked up by more and more people and getting discussed more. And I think that's kind of what happened with those. They didn't have great titles. They didn't have, they didn't necessarily even have authors who had a huge amount of credibility necessarily. So it wasn't like a big name. I mean, the Superfilm study was, um, but a lot of them were not. It's it just for whatever reason, they were picked up. I'm thinking about the titles mostly because everywhere nowadays we live almost exclusively on titles. Hmm. I, I sincerely doubt that there are many people who read further than the title in almost any type of media. So my thought was maybe, because usually scientific titles tend to be pointing to the main conclusion. If the titles of the preprints before they get peer-reviewed and uh, subsequently potentially published are less certain in that one head sentence that you have in a, a work that is not final, then maybe fewer people would be compelled to share that without necessarily mm. critically reviewing the whole text and the whole data in that preprint or you twisting it and using it for their own uh, agenda and initial ideas. Yeah, I mean, that is a good point. You know, one of the things I like and dislike about preprints is you get to choose your title when you submit to it. And this happened for our, our paper, actually. We had a, a really much catchier title uh, for the preprint than the paper. But journals will force you to have something that is descriptive generally mm. and relevant to the paper, whereas ours is a bit, it was kind of headline catchy a bit, um, which I loved because that's that's where this paper started from. I came up with a title before I came up with it, the rest of the paper. <laughs> and it was so good, I thought we just have to have a paper now. Um, and then we did this exactly the same thing with the second paper. Um, but it, it is, that is definitely part of it. And you, we have seen plenty of examples where scientists have tried to game the system a bit to get more attention. Yeah. Um, we've seen people who are not experts suddenly become experts on topics, which has been amazing. I, I wish I could do that. And that is, I think that is something where maybe preprint servers could definitely do a bit better in mm. and just policing that a little bit. Because 
scientists love to have fun when we name things. Just look at any Drosophila gene name. <laughs> we love it. But when it comes to a paper title, when it comes to things that are being so publicly shared, maybe we do then have to think about what responsibility we have in communicating that aspect. I, I do think that it's important that final published articles that have passed through the professional peer review and potentially through the peer review of, of their preprint should have both descriptive and somewhat catchy or as catchy as possible title so people are not turned off <laughs> from reading it just because already the title is so descriptively boring but yeah that that's that's my thought that maybe that one that can be a fairly potentially easy way to deter sharing information that hasn't necessarily been already um, scrutinized. And yeah, it would help. I, it would definitely help. But the point is that clearly there isn't currently uh, one single solution or decision whether or not preprints are good and for what are good and for what there may be uh, still way to use them properly. But still we do have some conclusions of our conversation today and of our Twitter chat. Maybe Maria, you can uh, guide us through what you think are the takeaways on, on preprints at the moment? Oh my, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I just wanted to, you know what, I'll have everyone share. I just want to say that I'm really, really looking forward to more work from Johnny and his co-authors because this is the kind of stuff I want to see data on, you know. I, I was hoping that Chad would help me warm up a lot more to preprints. I'm not sure it has, but uh, I understand it's very complex, right? And I am just so excited to see a bit more work done on specifically the best benefits of having preprints open to the media and the public to your, you know, like average non-expert, uh, which is the kind of people I try to talk to in my psychom efforts. And I'm not sure I see it. I definitely see a lot of benefit for science, for public health, you know, especially in the time of great speed and need. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm, I'm not going to, I'm still quite cautious of how this information can be used, misused in the um, extremely volatile and complex uh, way that people may make decisions based on information. That's what I have. What about you guys? Can I actually just jump in on that? Um, science is made for scientists by scientists. And I, which I think is horribly wrong. And that's why you get all these convoluted titles and papers are generally mm -hmm. quite difficult to read. I'm an immunologist, that's my, that's my day job. And pure immunology papers are the most boring thing in the world to read. <laughs> I hate them. Um, I'm probably gonna lose my job saying that. But <laughs> You know, what, what we should be doing, it should be science for the public is my, my thinking because mm -hmm. we, we are paid through public money and charity money mm. and that money goes to not just our wages and the reagents but the process of publishing a paper, the process of getting that work out there and sharing it. And so why not have those people who are paying our money to, to, to see the output and to be able to access the output? And you are seeing a lot of public health groups, a lot of people who have, you know, if, if cancer is a good example, actually, a lot of people who get cancer will then suddenly become very interested in the, in the research because it's affecting them personally now and they want to know more. And I think we should be opening it up so that they can learn more. And part of that, I think, is changing what our job as a scientist is because we should not be leaving communication just to science communicators. I think as a scientist, that is part of my job. It's my job to make sure I communicate my work well and that I don't overstate my claims. Yeah, agreed. And of course, it's it's a lot of work, right? A, lo a lot of scientists are not necessarily trained in communication. And I, from my experience, it get harder and harder through years of research to even talk like a human mm. about my work. So, which is why I have a YouTube channel. Oh, Johnny, I would love if you could 
could explain some really complex topics to me like you're talking to it and you're old so i might i might reach out to you that's all i can say i i, I love to help scientists try to train that muscle you know because i feel like it's incredibly hard to communicate things simply enough I agree. And I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, we talk about the public as sort of this big, you know, just <laughs> ginormous thing, right? But like, there's different sector, you know, segments of the public. So there, there is the media and even the media as a whole is not the media as a whole, right? Like there is, there are legitimate news outlets that actually, you know, do due, due, due diligence before they report, um, yeah. or at least as much as reasonably possible on tight deadlines. And then there's, of course, like the super hyper sensationalized partisan news sources. Um, and those are going to, you know, they're going to treat obviously information from preprints and and you know bro more broadly scientific information differently same thing goes in policy context you have people who are policy area experts and so they're going to be looking at the information and have a deeper understanding of what this information is even if they're not trained as scientists because they have more context they understand what's happening they understand what these things are you know what these things actually mean in, at a deeper level versus somebody who doesn't have that background who might just be using it to you know say influence their support on something. And so I think that might be also one of the areas that, you know, um, maybe, you know, folks that are interested in doing research on preprints would, would be looking at is sort of the use in preprints, um, both in media context, but also in policy context, more specifically, and what kinds of maybe titles or, you know, topics are being used, you know, to influence partisan priorities, because the reality is that, and at least from what we've seen, for the, you know, in the past couple of years, is that policy consequences can be huge. And so I think there's a lot of areas uh, that we can extend and think about as scientists and science communicators on how preprints actually work and, and what we understand about them and how they're used. And I agree with you though, that also sort of shapes how we talk as scientists to the broader multifaceted public. So there is somebody has looked at that, um, and I cannot remember the Wonderful. name of the paper. But that the, that at least an aspect of that is out there. But and politics and partisan politics in particular have been just disastrous for every aspect of the pandemic, especially the way that science has been like I say hijacked by politicians to just push their own goals and agendas. I, I would love to just I I mean thank Johnny for bringing up the the whole idea mm -hmm. about how we rethink our roles as scientists too. Yeah. Um, that's something that I'm gonna walk away from this conversation today and really marinate on. Um, because I guess doing this work, I think intuitively sort of understood that, but I think I need to think about that at a more conscious level. Um, and so I would just say, hey, to our listeners as one call to action, think about that. What is our role and our responsibility as scientists to be able to communicate with, you know, the public or a segment of the public, at least um, being experts that we are. Johnny, do you have any last uh, call to action for people? I just think as scientists, we need to appreciate our limitations a bit more and to consciously think about all of these things, because I think often we don't. We need to think about how we're teaching the new generation of scientists who are coming through and to just accept that we might sometimes be wrong and that's okay. Because mm. I think too often yeah. we, we don't accept that and it's okay to say I was wrong and mm. to change your mind. Ah, that's beautiful. Thank you. Well, my call to action would be for Johnny to call us up when you have more research <laughs> and you want to talk again about um, preprints in general or anything related to that more specifically. We'll happy. be happy to have you again. And for everyone else, um, 
a call to action to our listeners is think about preprints, think about science publishing, think about what you, um, your experiences with it, what you're missing, what is not okay, and just talk about it because only through conversation we can actually improve on things and make things better. Unfortunately, that's all the time we had for today. Thank you, Heather, Sherry, Johnny, Maria, for coming today. It was a great conversation and I'm looking forward to the next one. To the listeners, make sure to follow us on Twitter at SciComm underscore JC to participate in upcoming conversation, but also to contribute to the past one. On our Twitter account, you can always find the moments from previous chats or the highlights, and you can still always participate to those conversations and we'll be happy to hear what, what your thoughts are on those topics. You can also come to our website, leave comments, get in touch with us, and subscribe to our newsletter as well. To do that, go to www.psychomjc.org. This podcast is recorded by the PsychomJC team. It's produced and edited by me, Novena Christosova, and our music is from Audio Jungle. Thank you for joining this 24th episode of the Psychom JC podcast. If you liked it, let us know. Please share it with your colleagues, with your friends, with your family, if they're interested at all in science communication. Go to iTunes and leave a review. We would be happy to know how we can improve this show to help you. Until next time, stay nerdy. <laughs>